Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. This episode is the sixth in our ongoing exploration of Clayton Crockett's book, Energy and Change, A New Materialist Cosmotheology. Mary Jane Rubinstein is, uh, I admit, one of my favorite people in academic space, and Matt Valor and I were fortunate to have her join us recently for a discussion on Chapter 6, which is all about radical theology and the nature of God. We spoke for about an hour, and afterward Matt and I talked for uh, another 15 minutes or so after MJ had to drop, which you'll hear. In the few days since we had this conversation, I've been thinking a bit more about, uh, and you'll, you'll hear this, what Clayton talks about when he invokes this dualism of the spirit of capitalism and the spirit of Earth. And within the context of radical theology and to the extent that context is, is associated with this spirit of the Earth, what I'm thinking about here is a kind of basic difference between capitalist extraction as a sort of, I don't know, an upward consolidation of energy and kenosis as its opposite as a more downward distribution. Uh, And so in relation to the conversation around energy as a process that's both uh, irreversible and asymmetrical, you know, I'm thinking in relation to thermodynamics is something I think is interesting, but also thinking spirit in terms of energy, I think also means coming to terms with the idea that essentially there's no free lunch. There's always a cost associated with the outpouring of spirit, uh, even if that outpouring, uh, or maybe because that outpouring is excessive uh, and that cost or excess isn't one that can be calculated in advance. For me, this is very much consonant with a kind of magical ontology, and anyone with experience in uh, more magical operations will know what I'm talking about. Uh, It's sort of a trope, but also uh, a deep truth there, I think. You know, the devil always takes his due. So anyway, I offer that just to uh, hopefully enrich the conversation. But if that doesn't resonate with you, then uh, carry on, I suppose. We're at warmachinepodcast.com. Just a quick look ahead, we'll be speaking to Andrew Davis in a couple of weeks on his recent book on exolife and Whiteheadian cosmotheology, as well as Ronaldo Anderson, who has written quite a bit around uh, Afrofuturism and related topics. So we're looking forward to that. Last thing here, we have a Patreon. So if you'd like to support us in that way, uh, whether it's a dollar an episode or a couple bucks a month, it's certainly appreciated. And the link to that is in the description. So with all of that out of the way, here's our conversation with Mary Jane Rubenstein on energy and change. Peace. Hey, hey, what's up? Good, how are you? I'm good. Hey, Matt. Hey, here we go. Hey. Oh, hi. It's good to see you both. Good to see you too. 
Yeah, nice to meet you, Mary Jane. I don't think we met before. I don't think we have, but I know I've seen you. Do you show up at AARs? I, 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 your, your face looks really uh, familiar to me. Well, it's lovely to meet I, you. Yeah, you too. I don't know where you will have seen me. I, I've not been to AAR. I wish I could, but it's a trip across the Atlantic. So I know, uh, we always have it in Texas, so there's no reason yeah. to go. Absolutely. In fact, there are reasons not to go, perhaps. I'm not going this year for the first time in like 23 years or something like that. So, well, enjoy the time away, I suppose. Well, yeah, I'm. Um, you don't need it at this point. I, yeah, I don't know. It's just I, I, I'm in this administrative job that's kicking my ass, so I just I can't get out. But. Um, that's funny. Um, not too long ago, Petra was telling me, um, Petra Carlson, that she she had taken an administrative role uh, wherever she is. I can't remember, and it was killing her as well. She had to do a lot of um, convincing to uh, unload that onto somebody else. The person before me seems just to have lied. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be the way that it's transferred. It's pure deception. So talk to me. How does this work? Well, um, good question. It works differently every time. That is whenever we have uh, you know, somebody else join us, which we haven't been doing that for very long. I, I mentioned to Jeff when we talked to him that you know, Matt and I have been meeting periodically for a couple of years and, you know, digging into different texts that we've been reading together, which has been really generative and, and fun. Yeah. And and so when we were talking about doing this book and possibly inviting some friends into the conversation, I suppose I should have known this, but I didn't realize at the time when I asked you how much Clayton engages with your work. Um, <laughs> and I, I only mentioned that at the, the outset because like, I'm not really sure what to do with that exactly or how that will shape our conversation. It just kind of feels like unfamiliar terrain for me. Do you have any thoughts about that? I don't think we need to call much attention to it. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a little bit hard not to, no? <laughs> yeah, I, I I, mean, I don't know. If there are like questions about distinctions that he's making in relation to this stuff, I'm happy to... Uh, mm -hmm. But I, like, I think there are ways just to... to um, this is the kind of position he's affirming without saying like, and this position is very nicely set forth in a book that I wrote. Like this is, this is a position that he said, yeah. this, this goes nicely with this one and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Your, your bracketing powers are impressive. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to dissociate Matt. Always. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I just thought maybe today for our conversation, maybe we'd start with some general impressions of this chapter. And then after that, maybe we can, Matt, would you, would you do like a summary of like the long arc of the chapter? I know I'm putting you on the spot, but you're good. You're good at that. And then we can sure. kind of, you know, just get into the details, see where the conversation goes. I've got my book, by the way. So if you want to talk about page numbers or anything, you can, we, oh, I got it. I got it too. Yeah, great. I'm, I love page numbers. I love a page number. Like that's I do too. I, I just need to anchor myself there periodically. Because otherwise, what are, what are we talking about? Human beings? Like, but no, come on. We talk about texts. This is what we do. And good. And we're not, we're not, Um, this isn't, the, the video of this is not going anywhere, right? Just the audio? Just the audio. Great. So I can wear my dorky glasses and like put, hold them on my nose and. Yeah. And do whatever you want. Bring out, bring out the croquis. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're going to look <laughs> super rad right now. Okay. All right. I'm ready. All right, cool. Well, if I haven't said it already, thanks for uh, joining us. Really appreciate it. Do you want to go first? I remember when I spoke to you a while back before I'd read this, you said this, and I think it's actually part of your uh, blurb. It's this is the one we were waiting for from Clayton. Maybe you want to unpack that. 
Yeah, I do think that this, first of all, I'm so excited to be talking with both of you today. Thank you for the honor of this invitation. And uh, Clayton Crockett, if you are out there listening, thank you for having written such a beautiful book. Um, I do think this is the one that we've been waiting for. I think that Clayton has been talking about energy for a long time. He's been talking about energy before any of the rest of us were. Um, I think he's brought so many of our colleagues into conversation around this concept. Again, even before any of them, any of us uh, knew how to respond when he was saying, like, talk to me about energy. Tell me what you think about energy. Um, he's written chapters about energy and a number of his books leading up to this one. But this is the one that really gets at it conceptually, historically, um, philosophically, physically, and provides a... Um, on the one hand, a kind of critical interpretation of the term, and on the other hand, like a constructive amalgamation of tons of strands of thought to um, arrive at a theology, a theory of energy. Um, so on the one hand, it's classic Clayton, um, because he has this uncanny ability to bring together so many different strands of thought. Um, and he often will say, you know, okay, this is a path that I'm not going down, or this is a different path that needs to be corrected a little bit. But he's always so generous about it, and manages uh, to sort of hold as many as many strands together as he possibly can to weave them through one another. Um, he talks here about, in this book, about performing a diffractive reading, mm -hmm. um, just to sort of see what it is that uh, resounds by bringing all these characters together. I think I've always thought uh, he has an immensely generous way about him, and, and that really comes to the fore in this book. Yeah, I like that framing of his sort of wildly interdisciplinary tendencies as um, a generosity. I think that's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like that a lot. Um, it's great to be talking about this with you, Mary Jane, uh, having you here with us, uh, particularly for this final chapter of the book, because it has been a wild ride reading all these different chapters. And, you know, when, when Matt and I have been getting into the details of each of these chapters and sometimes with other people in the conversation as well, you know, I kind of look back on that whole experience now we're in the final chapter and sort of my mind is slightly blown by the amount of things we've talked about. I mean, I don't know any other book that I've read that would generate so many completely different conversations. I think that the thing about this chapter for me that's really that's really been compelling reading it after the, the previous chapters, because uh, I, I actually read this chapter just over a year ago as part of the um, when Matt and Justin were doing a radical theology seminar and had Clayton along. And so we just read this chapter. And so I kind of come to the book having got to the end already, but coming back to it, I realized how much I, uh, <laughs> I didn't know what I was reading a year ago, I think, uh, having gone through some of the earlier chapters. I, I love all of that. I guess my impressions just in a, in a general sense are, well, well, first of all, the content here is more familiar terrain the folks he's talking about and writing about, I'm you know, more or less familiar with, you know, the kinds of questions that Clayton is asking in a theological register are ones that I'm, I'm also very much interested in. In a sense, it felt a lot more, um, yeah, like this is familiar. I know, I know this conversation. I also felt like where the previous sections to a large degree felt a little bit more like expository. I mean, obviously there's constructive elements throughout, but this chapter to me felt more like a manifesto. There's a sort of intensity to it, uh, I think. And maybe that to some extent is kind of an effect of the ratcheting up 
of the previous plateaus into this more sort of intense mode of delivery. Like you, you said, I think reading this chapter on its own would not have quite the same effect as, you know, kind of going through what, what has come before. And, you know, it's Clayton, so it's still a little bit dry. He's not like reaching for some kind of like theopoetic language, like a Keller or a Caputo or something like this. There's nonetheless a kind of intensity that comes through here. And maybe I had this thought just before we jumped on. I think it might have something to do with the kind of performative quality of the text. He kind of repeats himself multiple times. He repeats the similar ideas, but he does it differently. So there's this kind of performance of difference and repetition that maybe gives it a kind of it's certain like energetic quality. Yeah, I like that. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, we talked in the last episode about the the kind of way in which the chapter actually becomes performative of the ideas in the chapter. Um, which is really hard to do, I think. Yeah. I would summarise this chapter as an attempt to draw the theory of energy that Clayton's been articulating in, in some detail through thermodynamics, through biology, through political economy and political ecology, and then through uh, Amerindian and uh, voodoo traditions and so on, into the discipline of radical theology, which uh, I think is where he would kind of situate himself as a philosopher of religion more readily than he would, say, in the field of thermodynamics or or even political economy, which he's also written about. And so there's a discussion of what is radical theology, where are the boundaries and and so on. I think the really interesting part of this trajectory is to push the question of if we're going to think about energy and change, how would that relate to an idea about God and the world and where do we locate God, if at all, uh, in a trajectory that has responded to a death of God? Is there a way to comprehend God as an effect of energy? So he has this phrase about talking about God being the effect of spirit, which is uh, almost like an unpredictable form of energy or an excess of energy somehow. And so the trajectory of the chapter is to explore different ideas in relation to that question of how do we think theology in relation to energy? And I think that the kind of centerpiece of the chapter is, for me, is a discussion of Catherine Keller's panentheism and then your work, Mary Jane, on pantheism and the kind of tension between those two or exploring how those two would work together. But then when we get to the end of the chapter, um, which also includes a, a discussion of Deleuze and Guattari, and Deleuze has been a key figure all the way through this book, we're left with this extraordinary final conclusion, which is all about love. And Matt, this has been a theme for us as we've as we've had our conversations over yeah. a long time now, the, the, the question of how do we think love in terms of energy? Yeah, he finally um, gives it to us on like the second to last page. He does, yeah. And it's absolutely extraordinary. Um, and I, all of the conversations that we've had so far sort of just came flooding back to me in terms of love in relation to loss, in, mm-hmm. in relation to uh, how we find 
newness in the world? Uh, where do we find the agency for change when we're faced with climate catastrophe and a sense that there is a future that is written somehow now that is unchangeable? Um, and that sense of vulnerability, I suppose, in the in the face of all that. We've had this discussion in this chapter then of, of different theological approaches, but we end with something that for me was was incredibly vulnerable. I'll just read the, the final few words. He says, I've been graced by extraordinary gestures of love and kindness that have made me who I am and other than who I am. I've tried to open myself up to these moments and these opportunities, even as I have squandered so many of them out of fear of self-preservation. All this is beyond me. Everything is beyond me, which is what transcendence means. Not a higher plane of existence, but the crossing of lines, boundaries, and gradients, where existence is truly shared sometimes with intoxicating drugs, sometimes in sexual ecstasy, sometimes in meditative tranquility, sometimes in struggle for justice, hope, or peace, or just a breath, a pause, out of time. Before we go. And that's the end. Yeah, it's an incredible way to to end, I felt very sort of personal, very existential. Yeah. Uh, I definitely felt a well of emotion there at the end because there's there's that sort of sense of, there's a, a mixture when you talk about change existentially of joy and sorrow. So there's a real sense of melancholy that I get. And yeah, great way to end the, a book like this, I suppose. Yeah. And I, I would say like reading this book has changed my life. And I think part of the way it's done that is by... I have encountered that kind of melancholy that I think that I needed. And I mean, we've been reading over months now, so this has been a slow burn for me, but it's been really meaningful. Mm. So, I mean, you know, regardless of all the technical stuff we could talk about, I would say on a personal level, this is, this has been genuinely transformative for me. I think we should get into it. I mean, I think it'd be interesting to talk about the radical R-A-D-I-C-A-L versus radical r-a-d-i-c-l-e uh that he develops from deleuze and then his idea of the rhizome the rhizomatic approach to thinking that deleuze and Guattari advocate this was completely new to me that we're kind of familiar with the idea okay there's this kind of arboreal metaphor of a, a big tree with roots and there's just one simple strong stem but a rhizome is you know all this kind of network of this and that and he's saying well it's more complicated than that because there's this mid stage the radical r-a-d-i-c-l-e radical stage which is where the tip of a root gets kind of cut off and onto it get grafted these other root shoots which start to create a, a kind of multiplicity but it's not yet a rhizome. And he's making the case that radical theology, as he sees it in the North American tradition particularly, has become 
this kind of radical system in the sense that it's not as straightforward and clear as kind of classical theology would be, but it still tries to create this God's eye view uh, on theological thinking. And if we were to be truly radical, then we would actually pursue a rhizomatic structure. Um, there, there may be all sorts of things you want to say about that. That The thing that struck me from this was that the theorization of the rhizome was about the idea of subtracting. Yeah. So there's there's a set of abstract potentialities from which something ends up being chosen. It, it's the subtraction from the possible into the actual that is what creates rhizomes. And so that's why a rhizome can include little shoots and big bulbs and all sorts of random stuff. And that is a crucial metaphor through this book, I think, in terms of how to conceive of reality, for want of a better word. And so he, he relates that back to Viveros de Castro's idea of multinaturalism that we talked about in the previous chapter as a subtraction. This is the Amerindian worldview, the subtraction from a, I think, a field of possibilities, how I understood it, a kind of virtual possibilities into something actual but you guys probably have better ways to talk about this than i do because this is relatively new to me well and it relates to the one and the many in, yeah in, a, in, a, yeah. in an important way so take right it away. we had a whole conversation about last time didn't we and then it, and then then there was this and i was like ah right <laughs> yeah i mean i guess to pick up on one of the threads from the last conversation and to be a little bit self-critical um the, the questions i was asking last time were i think they were fine questions, but they were also kind of assuming a kind of crypto transcendence where energy becomes the sort of the other of change or something like this, right? And so Clayton's inviting us and urging us to think imminently and, and think along a plane of imminence, which is not that easy to do, I think. And you know, the questions I was asking last time is is energy some kind of you know metaphysical substrate for Clayton? Or is energy differentiated in some way, which is, I think, is maybe a little bit better way of saying it. But I think those two things lend themselves to a more kind of crypto reductionism, right? Everything's energy. Um, when I started reading this chapter, I think what I realized is that energy is just kind of a way of describing the dynamic and differentiated situation in which we find ourselves, right? So it's not that like energy precedes change or vice versa right? We need to think these things at the same time. And so the plane of imminence is not a collapsing of the one and the many, but it's a moment of decision for the one or the many as sort of matter of political or uh, exigency or something like this. Okay. I think there are two things here, two big things here that you two have said that would be fun to talk about more. And one is what's right about radical theology, what's wrong with the radical theology, and what is Clayton proposing as a sort of remedy for radical theology? Or is it like, what, what is Clayton trying to bring into radical theology to transform it, to make it more rhizomatic? Why does it have to be more rhizomatic? What does it mean that it's not more rhizomatic? Like, I think that, that would be helpful to get into. And then also this question of like the ontology of energy, of what it is. Is it independently of manifestations of energy or is it only in its manifestations? Um, I mean, I've had a similar problem that I can see Clayton facing here which is when you're trying to say something is inherently multiple, the 
structure of grammar forces us to say something, which is a one, and you're trying to say it's apparently meant, like, how do you, how do you fold multiplicity? It's structure of the English language wants very much um, singularities and <laughs> distinctions and particularities and onenesses. Um, and it's hard uh, to, to sort of maintain the multiplicity in one's language. Um, I don't know, th those sound to me like two big strands that could be fun to tease out. My reading of what's going on here is that the death of God theologians and then even the more sort of Derridian inflected theologians are either, you know, mourning the loss of a singular omnipotent God who was going to fix everything or uh, translating this singular omnipotent God into ethics or something like that. Right. But that it, we were still more or less talking about that same God, right? Like the, the Derridian theology is Levinas. I mean, it's just, it's just the same ontology rendered ethically. So I think what, what Clayton does seem to be saying when he says that theology needs to become more rhizomatic, radical theology needs to become more rhizomatic. Um, it sounds to me that he's both saying it needs to become more multiple, certainly, um, in its attention to sites of divinity, but also sort of that it needs to become more constructive. It just, it doesn't, it's not just mourning what God isn't or where God isn't showing up, um, that it's attentive to sort of bubblings up of divinity. And, um, and yeah, I think that, um, the problem of the one and the many, if somebody could have solved the problem of the one and the many, somebody would have. There have been smart people working on this issue forever. And I think it is always possible to say that your one can be deconstructed into many. And it's always possible to say that your many can be assembled into one. So just as you're saying, Matt, I think it's a pragmatic choice for the one that you want to, the, the, the term here that you want to emphasize and the term that you want to um, prioritize. And that pragmatic choice is usually an ethical choice. Like there are more kinds of lives will gain meaning, even just conceptually, if we talk in this particular way. Right. Um, so there's a preference in Deleuze, certainly for the many, and in you know Michel Sayer for the many, and I think in Clayton for the many. Um, I certainly make this choice for the multiple where I can. And I think Catherine does too, except Catherine really wants to hang on to the way that the multiple ultimately can be provisionally circumscribed into a kind of unity. I think unity is um, is always important for Catherine Keller um, in a way that it may not be for some other folks who are also writing. Um, and I th that may be the, the whitehead in her, that may be the, but uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think that, that when Clayton in this chapter sets forth what I think to be the most, you know, deftly rendered kind of panentheism, which is to say Keller's panentheism, and also a, say, pluralist pantheism or a pluralist pantheology. Um, he doesn't opt for one or the other, right? He doesn't say like, oh, and I'm throwing my hat in with, right. um, there are sort of functional differences, there are clear operative differences, there are clear conceptual differences, but I think ultimately he's saying like, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really, like, go with go with any of this thing, this stuff, like right. the thing that attunes you to the manyness, manyness, the multiplicity and the, I don't know, like the beauty of things and <laughs> the circulation yeah. and the way that it goes. You can You can get there in a lot of different ways. I love that where you're pushing that too. And there's there's this one part here, what he says right after this, Barad's cosmology undermines not just human, but animal and indeed organic exceptionalism. The messianic does not take itself out of matter, but inscribes itself at its core. But this is the part that you made me th think of here, just, just a little bit further down. Messianic inception flashes up at every moment, 
According to Keller, a political theology of the earth, forged of entangled difference, calls upon that very multitude of an infinity of possible relations for ecocene solidarity, which is to say, for self-organization across vast reaches of critical difference. We are all in, pun en, without exception, even God, nobody gets unscathed. I love that little play with the words there because what comes through for me is a kind of political, eco-terrestrial solidarity there. It's like, it's not that we're putting our differences aside, it's that our, <laughs> our differences are, in fact, what lends urgency to these questions for us and what's at stake. I think I have a question about that from this chapter, which is, there's a moment where I... I wasn't sure I fully made the leap. So I'm I'm reading this as somebody that's quite interested in theology. I have been my whole life. I'm not a theologian, either, as in that's not my primary thing. So I'm reading this chapter and there's this whole discussion of radical theology. And then the most interesting bit for me was the bit about pan-theism versus pluralist pantheism. Then we go straight into Deleuze. And we're talking about uh, assemblages and territorialization and deterritorialization. And I feel like at that moment, we're moving into something that is back in a kind of political theology. But I think I'm struggling with that move in the chapter. I, I don't know if there's something implicit that I'm not recognizing. Um, the lobster is kind of, it's difficult. Yes, okay. Diff yeah. Let's just yeah, forget about so, the forget about the lobster. But so I think I don't understand the lobster, and I don't necessarily understand the move. And uh, then we get to the final bit where you have this incredible conclusion. It's all about love, and I'm you know totally moved, and I feel like my life has changed. And but ultimately, there's still a part of me that is kind of I'm not sure I quite uh, understand the the trajectory of talking about these theological concepts, which are fascinating and how that gets us through to talking about territorialization and deterritorialization. Um, that was the bit that I think I felt, I feel yeah. like I'm missing something. And maybe it's really obvious and I just not got it, but can you help me? Go for it, Matt. This is the way I always feel when I get to Deleuze chapters anywhere. This part didn't necessarily speak to me that much. I, I know that by looking back and seeing what I highlighted and didn't highlight, what did stand out for me is just before he gets into the the stuff on Deleuze and territorialization and re-territorialization is a brief conversation about capitalism. And this is right after he's talking about this kind of political eco-solidarity, talking about the stakes. Let me see. And the stake, which is at once theological, philosophical, economic, political, ecological, biological, physical, and spiritual, sort of describing the book in a way, is the struggle between the spirit of capitalism and the spirit of earth. So he's invoking a dualism there that I think is important context for what follows in the rest of the section. He talks about capitalism and other people have as well as a form of creative destruction. So the opposite of that would be the spirit of the earth, destructive creativity. For me here, specifics about the lose aside, there's a kind of apocalyptic insistence here and an apocalyptic urgency, which I think 
lines up with what he's been saying throughout the book. He's been pretty consistent on this point. More or less, you know, this is happening, we're fucked. Just a bit of an aside. I think what helped me is when we talked about last time, how he writes how the end of the world happened in 1492, I think it was, and kind of tells that story of colonialism and so on. So I think for Clayton, as I understand it, the apocalypse has already happened. We're living in the wake of the apocalypse. It's not determined. It's already occurred. I could be wrong about that. That resonates with me. Because I, 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 I mean, that's a conversation that we've been having. And I had the, the same experience in our last conversation with that end of the world moment. But I think that there's also a broader question of agency that's been raised all the way through the book. And he's particularly, you know, keeps coming back to Latour and Barad in relation to the question of agency. And it's a really confusing experience to read about it because I think at one sense, he's wanting to affirm we must change and we are changing. And at the same time, we can't control the ways that we're changing. I mean, that is very Latourian, I, I would say, in the sense that you've got this massively distributed agency. And so in Latour's concept of agency. And so, you know, if I want to affirm my own agency as an individual that I name and locate that within my own consciousness, I'm denying the distributed agency that I find myself uh, caught up with. And so I have less agency than I think I do in one sense. Um, but then in another sense, I'm part of networks in Latour's language, not my favourite term, but I understand the, the point being made. And I am an, uh, an actant in the network with agency, often more agency than other actants in that network. So I do have some agency. But when you put that in the context of that climate apocalypse or something. I mean, I really don't have very much agency at all. That, that's been the conundrum, right? That he's trying to help us to face the kind of, well, it's sort of existential angst that results from that. But I, but I think that isn't the, it, it, move, it moves beyond that because it's a kind of, um, in the end, you have to make decisions about your life and about how you treat people and how you think about the world and, not being able to control most things a part of the context in which we make decisions. I'm not sure where I'm going all this. I'm just sort of riffing. It might help to look sort of carefully at the very end where he does appeal to love and the way that he talks about love and like what love is. Um, I think that it's because it's pretty well grounded. And and this is where I think he does make a departure at the, at the bottom of page 259, um, a big departure from process theology, all of it, including Catherine Keller. When he says, in my radical theological journey, I learned that God is not love. Mm -hmm. um, and he's not rewriting this. He's not saying, but now I understand that God is love. I think he's he's insisting that God is not love. Um, and again, this is a whole this would be inimical to the to the process world, right? That's the one thing that they want to hang on to, the goodness and the the love of God. And uh, he says, in, in, instead, if God means anything positive today, it has to be change. And this is where he's been talking about Butler and parable of the sower. And right um, then at the bottom of 259, very bottom of 259, he says, so God is change. And then for me, love is an energy formation that embraces change. So God is not love. God is change. And then you can either respond to God with love, to change with love, or you can respond to change with, I don't know, rigidity and <laughs> cruelty and unacceptance of it. Um, mm -hmm. I was surprised here, and I'm, that's the reason this conversation is making me think of that passage, 
it's not in relation to the question of determinism. Nietzsche, for example, avoids like the total determinism of the eternal return by saying you can either embrace it or you can curse it. That's right. like that's the freedom right there. Yeah. Right. And when you embrace it, everything changes. Everything for you, for the world. Um, this felt very Nietzschean in that moment to me. We've got like this, I don't know, it's a crocket demon. And rather say, than saying like, you're going to live your whole life exactly the way that you did already, he's saying nothing is going to be the way that it was. Everything is going to be changing. And then the demonic challenge is, can you respond to that with love? Um, which I think is really beautiful. But I think that that's like, that's, I mean, there are all sorts of agencies. There's bacterial agency, there's yeasty agency, there's the, the agency of the seas, there's the agency. But like in terms of, human consciousness and self-consciousness, it seems it comes down to this response to change. Mm. Um, and so in that sense, Clayton's appeal to love seems to be really different from, say, Catherine's appeal to hope at the end of her political ecology book and her theological ecology book, where she wants to say, look, we can't just say everything is completely doomed. There has to be a sliver of hope for turning things around in order to change things structurally, in order to, um, you know, reforest, rewild the earth. Clayton doesn't seem to be going in that direction. He's, yeah. <laughs> that seems to be, that's a different, he goes for a different theological virtue, right? He doesn't go for, he doesn't go for hope. He goes for love. And this is the way that he he describes it. But. No, I, I love that. For some reason, this is all bringing the uh, serenity prayer to mind. Grant me the wisdom to know the difference between things I can change and things I can't. For me, that feels very much like the heart of this, kind of coming to accept our helplessness. Um, you know, as someone who's struggled with addiction, it, it's a strange paradox. It's only when you stop trying to fight it uh, that change becomes possible. I think there's a similar kind of move going on here. I'm not sure. I think that... Um... The bit that complicates it for me is this, the way that Clayton set up the spirit of capitalism and the spirit of the earth, which relates, I think, to how he talked about Latour's use of the Terrans, you know, the people who are convoked by the earth in opposition to the people that are convoked by some other power which alienates them from the earth, which are described as humans. So... On the one hand, you can't fight it, uh, you have to accept it. At the same time, there's this kind of battle drawn between these two spirits fighting and these two peoples convoked by these spirits or animated by these spirits, which makes me feel like, well, I have to pick my side. Yeah, but that's not where this ends, interestingly, right? I, I'm realising more and more talking to with, with both of you that this, this ends in a very... Um secluded place right i mean having spent the whole book being like I, I not to like quote myself but i once compared uh clayton's and jeff's work the work they do together to being like watching an episode of the muppet show where the muppets are like you know what we need we need more bears and chickens and frogs and things like they just just like they just bring everything in right they're just like yeah. you, and you and you and you come help 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 right help make sense of this thing right and there's this like riot of ideas and this riot of inter related conceptual apparatuses and he's like if you take three quarters of this and then shove three eighths of this into it you get more than a one and that's going to help us do the thing right and then everything really 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 quiets down in this chapter he's like i'm going to talk about a couple of things and then i'm going to give you a lobster no bib no butter no bib no butter we're going to talk about how the cosmos has been good to me and we get like we're just sort of alone with clayton at the end of it mm -hmm. right and his kind of coming to terms with i mean this honestly the the end of this, forgive me, Clayton, felt like a, a work written by an older person. Like 
I'm coming to terms with the end of things for myself. I'm coming to terms with like, my own finitude, right? Mm. In that sense, like the the personal is political, blah, blah, blah. but like the political edge kind of goes in the very last few yeah. pages of this, at least for me. And I'm sort of with Clayton in this sort of Cartesian way by his little fire, um, contemplating. <laughs> um, but he's, he's he he is he is sort of alone or facing himself or fa and facing his you know constituent others here um, in a in a way that I think. It's not like a rallying cry. It's not like, okay, let's get on the side of the, the Terrans and pull, or let's get on the side of the earth and pull, or let's like hold out for preventing 0.5 degree of climate change this way. It's it's smaller. And in that sense, it feels more like, um, was it one of you said that reminded me of sort of Epicurean? Oh, the serenity prayer, of course, which always sounds Epicurean, right? Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's this uh, like cultivation, like philosophy as a way of life mm. uh, feel at the end of this. Like this is the way you can get through in the face of all this, you know, for better or worse. It doesn't seem a polit political rallying cry. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying really does resonate with the general existential direction and thrust of what he's been writing about throughout here change as a kind of passing, right? So it's a sort of, not so much an embrace of that, but uh, there's some sort of acceptance of it or some kind of contending with it. And it's hard for me to imagine this book without, uh, you know, this sort of the personal loss that he's gone through. And I, I, I don't want to be glib about it or make too much of it, but you mentioned, I don't know exactly, exactly the way you said it, but theology is biography. So I can't help but read a little bit of that out of this as well. things you raised earlier, Mary Jane, was uh, um, along uh, the a couple of questions that we could explore further. One of them was around the, what Clayton means by the rise of in radical theology. The second one, I think, was about the ontology of energy. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Now, I that, think that might be something to, to, to talk into a bit more. Yeah. I was looking at the bottom of 255 and the top of page 256. So uh, very bottom of 255, energy is itself a Deleuzian rhizomatic multiplicity that can only be generated by subtracting it from an abstract potentiality into particular situations. Now, Deleuze does not come naturally to me. Like I, there are a lot of wonderful things that I've learned from Deleuze, I love him, but um, I, I translate this much faster to make sense of it into sort of Heideggerian modes on the one hand and um, Spinozan actually modes on the other hand. It seems to me that what he's doing with energy is trying valiantly to circumscribe a concept to, again, whose grammar makes us speak in singular ways about something that only ever shows up in instances, which is what Heidegger is trying to do with being, right? Heidegger is trying to say, like, there is no being back behind beings. Hmm. We have to be able to talk about being distinct from beings, and yet it's Ever distinct from beings and right. Um, I think, for what it's worth, that if you read Spinoza in a good mood, um, you can get a very similar thing out of his substance and modes. Absolutely. Um, and Spinoza puts me in a good mood, so I don't know. 
Gotta, yeah, you got to read them in a good mood. You can't be you can't be feeling cranky um, to get this this out of them. But I think it's a similar issue that that what substance is is an abstraction of modes through attributes for Spinoza, and what being is and is, is an abstraction of that which NBs beings for Heidegger. And I think that Deleuze can helpfully talk about this process as one of be, of of subtraction, right? Of getting out of the abstract into the energy knots that are the only places in which energy ever energizes. It's like there is no, there is no just energy, energy out there. Right. There's no end energy independently of energetic articulations, energetic expressions, energetic. Whatever. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that was the right, the way that I read that. Um, but I don't, that may not be. And I think that this is why he spends so much time with Viveros de Castro and with, you know, the, the pluralist part of the pantheism is yeah. like to try to get at those kinds of efforts to keep the multiple multiple and to say that they're look the reason that i find let's just say this a, a sort of pluralist pantheism a little more attractive theologically than um even the most beautiful of panentheisms is because it does seem to me that even the most beautiful of panentheisms end up recircumscribing a god as distinct from anything else Right. And that eight, that God is in some sense singular, that God is in some sense a participant in humanoid characteristics, like loving us and like wanting what's best for us and things like that. Um, and as beautiful as I think it is, uh, it doesn't do the materialist heavy lifting that I think that Clayton is looking for here. So uh, it seemed to me that that was what he was going for ontologically when it came to energy. But I don't know what you two think about that. Earlier on, when he's talking about energy, he's pretty clear on the idea that we don't know what energy is exactly. It's not very well understood. We intuit that there's this thing called energy based on effects that we observe and so on. And so we sort of posit it, but we can't see it in and of itself. And so energy becomes a way of talking about change or differentiation in imminent terms. In a sense, you could almost say it is... I think this may be taking things a bit too far, but it's like, it is the plane of imminence in a sense. Right, because uh, the plane can't be distinct from that which comes into being on the plane. The plane is the is the beings, right? Like the, there is no, there's no like independent nexus separate from the stuff that arises in and as the nexus. Yeah, and I think this is like, as counterintuitive as it seems, this is like the best account. Not that he's necessarily concerned with this here, but- this is the best account of why we get different things. Mm -hmm. Why do we get difference? Because difference differentiates itself. <laughs> it's very like uh, circular and, you know, um, uh, it's a way of not really saying a lot, but I mean, once you kind of onboard it as a sort of ontology or as a, as a sort of metaphysic, I think it definitely goes a long way in changing um, how you think about problems. It gets around the problem of the one and the many, right? You don't have to get from the one to the many. You don't have to, right, that particular problem of the one and the many. You don't have to get, yeah. you don't have to start from a one and get a many. It also gets around the consciousness problem, which I do not think is a problem. I've never thought it was a problem. I want to fall asleep when people talk about it. But if you talk about, with Barad, about um, not just the, you know, not just 
agency and not even just consciousness, but sort of like messianic change as inherent to the most basic particles of matter, then you yeah. don't have to say, how does any of this come from just that, right? So that's you, on, on both ends of the cosmic scale, you don't have to go from a divine one to a, you know, an earthly many, and you don't have to go from a subatomic inertia to a, you know, to a human brain or something like that. You don't, you don't have those problems of emergence, because as you're saying, Matt, difference and differences. It, I mean, does he talk about Deleuze's difference and repetition? Because that's, that's that. Yeah. That's the, yeah, that's like foundational for this. Yeah, I mean, there's a sort of, I mean, it's possible to get a kind of it is what it is uh, philosophy out of this where there can be, I think, a certain adoption of it can lend itself to a kind of passivity. And I think that's one of the kind of the things that we've been trying to deal with is the, is the question of, again, Matt, agency and uh, existential urgency as it relates to our agency, um, given this sort of broad metaphysical slash physical cosmotheology <laughs> that that Clayton is is uh you know gi- giving to us I've been reading some aboriginal theology recently and there's this word in a um, particular aboriginal language and I'm uh, off the top of my head I can't remember the name of the language and I'm also going to struggle to remember the word I think it's something like adith or something like that um anyway it just it means the way things are and this work of theology, it's very short, um, kind of popular work written for an Australian audience. It's very generous and gentle. But it's incredibly gritty when it insists on the primacy of the way things are, because it becomes this very resistive move against this kind of rampant invasion of extractive capitalism that uh, is represented by settler colonialism. Uh, and I was thinking about that in relation to this book, because so much of the critique is, you know, this is the economy, this is the political economy that we now have going. It's extractive. It's based on energy extraction. We've explored a lot about the the power that has been generated by putting energy to work and work being a technical term. Uh, there's something there about insisting on you know, it, you were saying, Matt, it is what it is. Something about insisting on the way things are, it is what it is, it is almost a kind of um, unexpected philosophical resistance to this um, massive love of potentiality, hmm. which was one of the things we explored in, um, it was either the introduction or in chapter one, that, that kind of particularly dominates American society and its kind of export around the world and globalization that we can just, there's potential to be found. And so the kind of impetus behind saying there's potential is that something can change. We can change the situation. We can make a new thing. Let's go make a new thing. And to insist that the way things are, it is what it is, uh, which doesn't sound at all resistive. Um, right can become resistive in the face of this kind of relentless drive to exploit potential. But if isness for Clayton, because I'm 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 taking the liberty of saying that he is going to mean being and God are basically the same thing, which isn't to say that he's onto theological, blah, blah, blah. We can just let it go. Um, but that if being itself is um, irreducibly changing, not just multiple, but changing, then what it is, what it is means is like it, 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 it will be what it will be what it will be right which is different and so there you know if if we've been talking about the sort of specter of determinism on the one hand 
and if we're always haunted, if we're if we're Clayton by the like particular form of messianism that arises in Caputo's Derridian take on theology, this would seem to be a third way, right? It's not determinism because it's not it, it isn't just what it is because it will be what it will be and nothing mm. is nothing will remain what it is. But it's also not like let's dwell in this veil of tears until this messianic event to which all we can say is viens, viens. Um, right. The, so uh, by putting Barad that late in the, and, and like this particular Barad, this like little thing that Barad wrote about the messianic, which became their lectures at, at Yale recently. So I think that the next book is probably going to do this, but um, by inscribing the messianic, not as some, you know, horizontal event that either comes or doesn't, that we have to sort of sit by our plows waiting for, um, but as a rough, constantly at the you know most basic level of materiality itself yeah. um it seems like we get it we get a different i'm not even i'm not even sure what to call this but it's like a again it sort of mobilizes constantly the is what it is and it like it, it draws the messianic down to the very to the anythingness of things there's almost a white heady and lure thing going on there not quite i know white headings would quibble with me about this but I always get the sense that there's something teleological at work in in Whiteheading, but also then, you know, you get like a Heideggerian call or something like that. I think there's resonances here that there's a sort of urgency or maybe insistence to use more Caputo-ish language. Um, but how do we think that more imminently? Well, you think it more imminently by realizing that there isn't a singular force of this call. That there's no right. This is what where I, I mm. think I stopped process theology is where process theology has this beautiful faith in this singular God with a single will for the good of all of us, right? God sees our mess. God takes our mess into God's self and God imagines ways that we can be and become into and with, and perhaps without and beyond God. Um, so we still have like a really benevolent dad, but this is like a singular dad seeing it all for us. And if you're going for a more Baradian ontology of matter, you've got all kinds of agents pulling beings in all different ways. There's no like singular vision for the, for the, it's a mess. It's a mess. It's a complete, <laughs> like competing interests all the way down. And I think that this is what's compelling about so many of the like indigenous American ontologies is that like they don't seem to be particularly taken by that drive in so many sort of monotheistic cultures to uh, look behind the mess of the world to figure out the perfection from which the mess derived, right? The, the, like this same kind of riot of disparate agencies and desires that we're all living goes like all the way down and all the way up all the way to the sides it's just it's it, there isn't a single vision for how the cosmos ought to go or a single i i don't know this is is that does that seem like a fair reason that he might be appealing to barad toward the end or does that yes that resonates very strongly with me and my reading of this absolutely because i, I felt like the, the thing that he's affirming most in terms of what he puts in the tradition of radical theology is your work, Mary Jane. That's how I read this chapter, that this kind of um, pantheism that is thought in terms of the uh, multiplicity, which which he wants to um, conceive in terms of a Deleuzean rhizome. And so I found the quote I was looking for. He writes, to signify is to signify gods, worlds and monsters, which is obviously a reference to your work necessarily as well as animals people's systems processes and energies and that's the bit where it really resonates with me that the idea that signification is 
something that is excessive and um, uncontrollable and signifies all kinds of different types of beings, sometimes at the same time, you know, what one being could be signified in multiple ways at once. And in terms of agency, then that becomes a the, the kind of relationship between agency and signification then becomes something that's really interesting to explore. And for Latour, I'm trying to remember the quote, because agents act, they signify. Agents acting are in quest of existence. And I think that that idea that you know, all of us in some way are, are just in quest of becoming, of existing, and the kind of signification that spills over from that a genteel quest of all beings in the world is just powerfully signifies all of these um, different types of language, different types of uh, images that we have to talk about the world. I find that really, really compelling because that is then a, a very deep multiplicity that allows us to... Well, I think probably I find it compelling because I don't want to get steamrolled by the idea of a one. So I'm constantly rebelling against that, I think. Yeah, well, Nietzsche had this figured out long before we did, you know, the will to power. Yeah. It's pretty similar. (laughs) Well, there's a quote somewhere. Is it the one that AJ mentioned where he suggests, I think sort of implicitly suggesting the possibility of, of a kind of colonial tendency here to kind of bring everything within the sort of the radical theological camp. I am affirming Rubinstein's pantheology as a species of radical critical theology, not to discipline or domesticate it, but somewhat as a Trojan horse because her pluralist pantheology works in and against radical theology in transformative ways so that radical theology can become more pantheistic and more pluralist that is rhizomatic along the lines of Deleuze and Guattari. Since he's talking about your work, I mean, how, how do you feel about that? Do you think that's fair or unfair? I'm did you did you have honored. a feeling about it? I'm totally honored. <laughs> how what a what a joy to be read so generously. I think it's a it's a great honor. Um, you know, my, I I trained up under one of these death of God guys too. Um, so it makes a lot of sense that I, I I've never you know identified myself as a theologian or as a radical theologian, but um, mm. I certainly owe a lot to that tradition. And if there's any way that you know part of this um I tend to say that like I don't I don't know if I'm a pantheist I don't know if I want anybody to be a pantheist I'm just trying to say like this is what a decently thought pantheism would look like and if it is useful to you please have fun with it right like do go go do a thing um so uh if it's useful to the project of radical theology I think that that, that makes me glad because it's certainly um I think the reason part of the reason I was so drawn to it is that there is in in all of this stuff that we grew up with, right? All of the uh, Derridianism, the radical theology, um, the negative theology, um, this almost fetishizing of transcendence and otherness, and and um, I, I do think that it's not just that all of the like parascientific disciplines seem to be converging on a thing that looks like pantheism. Right? I think they are. Um, it's, which doesn't mean they're right. It just means that there seems to be like a trend, right? There seems to be a, a way of thinking that might be productive right now here. Um, but it also, I think, does speak to some of the um, what we haven't been getting all these decades from the radical theological crowd and the um, the Derridian and post-Derridian crowd. So uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm I would be I would be delighted if it were useful to the task of radical theology. I'd be very happy.
so MJ, always a pleasure. I know you have to go. Um, anything you want to uh, leave us with before you before you drop? Um, read the book if you haven't read the, read the book. It's a it's a careful, um, clear, really clear, readable, beautiful, um, helpful book. Thanks to Clayton for rock, for uh, writing it, and thanks to both Matts for the time that you've taken with it. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, talk soon. Peace. I definitely get that point of view when you're talking about like the last few pages where he kind of mm. adopts this more personal tone. But like I said at the at the beginning, for me, it felt very, yeah, it felt a little bit more, even more intense. Yeah. Than, okay. Yeah. Than, than the previous chapters. Um, and that. But is it conceptual? Is that like conceptually intense or like something other? Mm. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure about that. I theorized as to why that might be the case, you know, like the whole difference in repetition thing or, but yeah, it just might be that what he's writing about here speaks in language that's more uh, familiar and native and um, or compelling to me. Mm. Uh, I'm coming away from this with um, a lot of valuable insight that I didn't have previously and some, some new ways to approach problems and, and so on and a coherent picture of a cosmo theology that sure you could scale it up to something like the one or the universe or whatever you want to say but really this is a sublunary cosmo theology at least that's the kinds of questions that he's asking the concern here is with the earth yeah. and and it's not so much speculating the point is not to speculate about the cosmos and the nature of the cosmos and are there extraterrestrials or whatever. It's really a close look at what's under our feet. You ever watch a movie where you come away from it and you're, you're not really quite sure what to think? You know you liked it, but it, it's the kind of movie that keeps you thinking about it for a while. That's how I feel a little bit with this book. I feel like I'm just going to keep thinking about it but not really kind of landing on some sort of solid ground of what i'm supposed to think about it or do with it maybe that's the point the point is to sort of a large part of the book is to generate a new forms of theological thinking or or otherwise yeah yeah it's interesting I, because i i feel like you know the book's delivered i think on what we kind of understood that it was setting out to deliver in the introduction which would be a sort of philosophy of energy and that would be thought obviously in terms of philosophy of religion and theology as well as these other framing particularly like political ecology and political economy and you know practical things that we think about in the context of 
the world we find ourselves in. Uh, and the question we're asking there at the end about ontology of energy, I mean, it's a really interesting question in one respect. And then in another sense, it's sort of like, it's so big, you kind of think, well, okay, yeah, it's, that's not the main thing I'm going to be thinking about now, you know, but I think things like, um, like a world produced by subtraction, mm -hmm. I think is an interesting idea that I want to think more about. Uh, the idea of a kind of politics and economics of exchange, I feel like I want to think a lot more about. Mm -hmm. um, just even thinking about non-equilibrium thermodynamics and gradient reduction, is a, I, I felt it's always been implied that that was like a key way to think about all these other types of energy because he wants to theorize energy as a form of gradient reduction. Right. So then we started to talk about gradient reduction in the context of economic inequality or things like that. So I, I, some of those things are really quite um, conceptually profound, potentially. I think I felt when I first read this last chapter, I, what my main thought was I'm really interested to read this book because I feel like I'm missing some things. And so definitely having read the book, I, you know, definitely got a lot more out of this last chapter. Still not completely sure I, what am I trying to say? Do I feel completely satisfied landing in theology? This part of it that felt like, well, this is Clayton's thing. And so you, you kind you're of got to do You're going to get some of this. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a bit unfair because it's not, I mean, he says more than that and, I think Mary Jane's um, observation that uh, in some important way, Clayton is doing a kind of ontotheology here. I mean, she backed off from that because, I don't know, I guess ontotheology is a dirty word, but I'm not opposed to ontotheology. So we didn't talk about Tillich at all in this okay. conversation, in this conversation yeah. which is completely fine because I don't think Tillich's thought or his specific thoughts, other than his theology of culture and how that is a sort of extremely important influence for early radical theology. I think that the ontological Tillich is, isn't something that he talks about, but I think might be an interesting thing to think a little bit about because, yeah, sure, Tillich has a sort of existential project, but ultimately his idea of being, I think, is ontotheological. And that's something that I think, alongside the idea that process theology and radical theology are sort of sibling theologies of change and difference, it can be argued that they're ontotheologies as well. I put this question to Matt Segal when I was talking to him a while back, and he, he was saying, oh, you know, some people think process thought is an ontotheology. And I said, okay, well, I, you know, tell me more about that because that's kind of more or less the assumption I've been working with. I can't remember what his response was, but it made sense. I have to go back and listen to it now. At the time, his, his response made sense, but just because your idea of being is change and therefore sort of auto-deconstructive or whatever you know term you want to use there, that doesn't mean it's indissociable from saying something about being. I'm not no, sure. I mean, I think that is the whole point of the book, is that it shouldn't be dissociable from being or God. I mean, or, or transcendence or, you know, that all of those, the idea that any of those terms should be stable is, mm -hmm. um, is weird. 
Uh, why, why would they be stable? The, the much more obvious thing to say is that, that they would be constantly changing. Yeah. Because it's not change that has to be explained. It's stability. Stability is the weird scenario. Right. Right. And when we talk about, so so to talk about an ontotheology, it's not to talk about necessarily being capital B as uh, understood as some sort of immutable, unchanging essence or substance or what have you. It's just a sort of reimagined onto theology, I suppose. The furthest horizon of your thought, like I said, you know, you can scale this up to the one if you want to, and you can call that God, but that's not the point. Yeah. And you don't have to call the one God. I mean, that's my position is that you don't, God is such a contested term that there's no necessary reason that God means one. The point for me about ontotheology is, so I think about those things in terms of Latour's uh, inquiry into the modes of existence, which I think is just, the, the detail of it is sort of interesting to a point, but I think the concept of it is more interesting than the detail. Okay. And the con- the concept is there are various modes of existence. And by, you know, when we're talking about existence, we're talking about ontology and they they have to be translated into one another. And so if we talk about ontotheology, we're talking about a mode of existence. We're not talking about the only way to talk about existence. We're talking about a mode of existence. Hmm. Um, or multiple uh, multiple modes of existence. Yeah. You can get caught in a, in a genuine and valid conversation about the challenge of ontology versus epistemology. So sure. As soon as you start talking about anything, you're only talking about things you know about the things, yeah. you, you know. Yeah, you, then you're, you're, but then you're fucked. Yeah, how is your language ever going to reach to the things that really are because you're always bound in the, in the things that you just know uh, or, or more to the point, don't know. Um, so, okay, let's accept that as a given, mm-hmm. but we can posit the idea that nonetheless things are and the conversations that we can have as a result of positing that things are and hence we have a return to ontology and we we do that happily and readily in the discipline of the sciences um but it's kind of a bit weird if we do it in the discipline of theology and i think that's for me one of the ways that latour is so helpful because he as much as anyone i've ever read the most capable of saying that all of these discourses have ontological value um and it doesn't mean they aren't constructed by human language when we're all having a conversation about them and we don't have to choose uh, we just we just need to not be uh, crazy about it we don't need to say that on the one hand our language corresponds exactly to reality and on the other hand we don't need to say that um, nothing we ever talk about ever bears any resemblance to reality right. what's interesting is where the collectives come together including those of us who use language in those collectives yeah, uh, and um, negotiate patterns of agency, and that's what's actually interesting, and that's what we could talk about. And I, I think that's what we've been talking about in this book. Yeah, I, I really like that, and it makes me think of you know, a sort of general sense of meeting the universe halfway. You're sort of mm. pushing aside the well, not pushing aside, but I'm not sure what the right, right way to say that is. It's a sort of subordination of the onto epistemological question, or or a reconceptualization of that. And that's done in a way when, you know, when Karen Barads talks about meeting the universe halfway, the universe invokes a sort of specter of the one, but then all of the examples she gives, you know, have nothing to do with the one. I think she's just using universe in a colloquial sense there. 
And so to the point that you were making, and I think Clayton talks about this somewhere in here about the something like the importance of translatability and learning to speak. I don't know if it was the code, like different codes or or different languages, right? I think there's an interesting push and pull where on one hand, we're reintroducing a a certain variety of anthropocentrism as valid and perhaps even necessary for how we understand the world. And yet at the same time, uh, Clayton is advocating for a, he wants to, he wants to, I think in a sense, show us or, or suggest that our, not just our forms of discourse, but our, our, our ways of communicating are impoverished or limited. And so we need to imagine new ways of communicating uh, or, or of meeting, not just meeting the universe halfway, but meeting animals halfway, of meeting minerals halfway, of meeting anything that we encounter has agency as part of the sort of democracy of things that I think he's in favor for. I, I like that. I struggle with that a lot. I really like that that sort of expansion of the idea of, well, that's a commentary on what does it mean to meet the universe halfway. I really like it. It makes me think of, and I don't know much about translation as as you do, but it makes me think about it as a sort of project of translation. I, I'm not really conversant in, in uh, discourses around translation and cybernetics, but kind of situating that that relatedness within the context of this book where there's a large discussion about an understanding of thermodynamics, not just as a sort of heat exchange or moving heat across a gradient, but uh, also information. I don't know enough about these topics to really be speculating on this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I can imagine a kind of like companion book to this that talks about translation and cybernetics and communicating with the non-human and more than human and in thermodynamic, cybernetic terms. I barely know what I'm saying right now, so. <laughs> yeah, no, that, well, that's really interesting because um, I would say that, so there's a translation studies scholar called Kobus Murray, who's uh, based out of South Africa. And so he's writing on these things, exactly that. Oh. So his, um, a few years ago, he published a biosemiotic theory of translation. And that's really taking up the kind of biosemiotic tradition, which developed from the semiotic tradition of um Purse. Charles Sanders Peirce uh and um you know which is very much the kind of prag- pragmatist tradition um that deals very much with the idea of I suppose complexity theory and the kind of systems in which semiotic or biosemiotic um communication for one better word the, the argument is essentially that translation should be conceived as semiosis, so the process of semiosis yeah. um, is, is translation. So it's not just a linguistic thing, it's actually a fundamentally semiotic thing. Right. So my, my work is currently engaging with that. Um, I'm actually currently working on a chapter for a book edited by the guy that wrote that on that theme. And the argument I'm putting forward is that there's a more fundamental way to think about translation and I draw primarily on Latour and Barad in order to make that claim, because I think that translation in Latour is a ontological feature. It is the ontological feature. Mm. It's the means by which new existence is possible. 
the limitation of Murray's work on biosemiotics is that it makes semiotic it makes translation about meaning which is better than making it about language but i think that in order to have a thoroughly new materialist theory of translation which is what my overall project is aiming at we have to be able to theorize translation prior to meaning or anterior somehow to me so that it has a kind of um the actual production of being is a translational phenomena which in Latour's language then results in signification and once you've got signification then you can trace the ways in which signs signify and are interpreted and so on and you have you have translation of semiosis which is really helpful and helps get beyond kind of linguistic solipsism I think there are ways to think about translation in in thoroughly materialist or, or in specifically new materialist terms but that's a that's an interesting debate that's going on because this guy's written about thermodynamics and he's put mm. it but literally just come out on that on translation and thermodynamics so it's well what's I, it called yeah what's it called uh, um maybe that's the uh maybe that's where we go next because it sounds it sounds, <laughs> it sounds fascinating to me yeah yeah i mean it's really interesting because I, so he and i I mean, he's very established. I'm not. He's been good to me in helping me mm-hmm. develop my work. I, I don't agree with him on quite a few things. I think we're try- both trying to sort out why we don't agree. I think it's to do with a sensibility and his drive towards complexity theory. So he's based in South Africa and he comes from this context where he's seen development work, mm-hmm. in his words, fail. And... I think he feels like it was the, the intellectual climate in which that happened was one where you would kind of deconstruct power dynamics and um, basically made no difference. So yeah. he then ended up in systems theory because then you can actually trace the interplay of those dynamics. And so he's ended up using translation as a means to explore that. I think it's a really interesting, it's very solution for, you know, we talked about getting beyond solutionism. It's very much like, can we have a theory of the world? that would enable us to know enough about how these systems operate so that we could actually influence and change them and make things better for people. Um, Well, I I don't think there's anything wrong with that project. You know, I, I, it's, it's been highly successful in a lot of ways. I I just think it's interesting in light of the sort of sensibility you were talking about, right. There where he says he's seen a variety of solutionism fail. And then he's like, well, let's, let's just try this other one. That's kind of an, that's kind of an interesting twist to it but i don't think there's anything necessarily problematic at all to do systems theory i think it's really interesting i think the 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 bit that i find challenging about it and this is something i found more generally with people from a kind of pragmatist tradition Mm. is it something about the sensibility of it is kind of like if we just could get enough information if we could just get enough then Mm. Mm-hmm. we'd get there that's what it feels like um and i suppose because i i really do come from that post-structuralist tradition that is like you know the more you try and get the answer the more you undermine yourself um yeah or like princess leia says to the general right the more you close your fists around the the galaxies the more they'll slip through your fingers something like this Exactly like that. Exactly like that. Yeah. So I'm interested in what slips through the fingers. And um, yeah, but it, it is interesting because, we, we, you know, in the context of what we've been reading, 
in Clayton's book. You know, in the end, we come back to like an autobiographical question of like what motivates you to write this. So you end up with this, like the sensibility of how you feel. I mean, Mary Jane was saying the same about, you know, are you a panentheist or a pantheist? It sort of depends how you feel. You yeah. Know, like what what drives you? What conversation are you part of? Exactly. Um, yeah. I, I mean, that is a really interesting and key part of any sort of review, book review process, isn't it? It's like actually what uh, on what terms is this being done and yeah, you can say what it's missing, but what does it achieve? Because it, it, it can, even if you can critique it, it can achieve something really quite important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I found the title of that book, by the way. It's called uh, Trajectories of Translation, The Thermodynamics of Semiosis. Oh, Jesus. Fucking nerd alert. What was it again? <laughs> it's the Trajectories of Translation. Trajectory. Sorry, I'm like actually trying to type this in my phone. Of Yeah, yeah. Trans. Uh, I'm slow fat thumbs yep uh colon the thermodynamics of semiosis oh here cobus maria something like this yeah Murray. yeah cobus Murray. okay Cobus-Murray, uh yeah. oh it's available in hardcover it's only uh it's only 170 yeah, it only out in june so well there's a kindle version let's see how much is the kindle version uh it's not supported so we can't get it right now uh, well okay. let me read the just short description here. This book builds on Maurice's, I hope I'm saying that right, innovative, a biosemiotic theory of translation to explore the implications of this conceptualization of translation as the semiotic work from which social cultural reality emerges and chart the way forward for applications in empirical research. The volume brings together some of the latest developments in biosemiotics, social semiotics, and Persian semiotics with emergent work in translation studies towards better understanding the emergence of trajectories in society culture, society culture, why did you say that, through semiotic processes. The book further developed lines of thinking around thermodynamics in the work of Terence Deacon to consider the ways in which ideas emerge from matter, creating meaning and its opposites, namely the ways in which ideas constrain matter. It's interesting. Mariah links these theoretical strands to empirical case studies in the final three chapters towards operationalizing these concepts for further empirical work. Sounds heavy, but interesting. Yeah, it is heavy. It is heavy. And I think he he really wants to push it towards uh something that will function in social sciences. Okay. okay. So he's got his you know, he's got his theoretical humanities languages background hat on, and he's wanting to push engagement with natural sciences in order to something that would work for social science. So it's pretty, um, okay. that's part of the challenge of it because he's navigating so many disciplines. Yeah, sounds cool. I, I don't know why he was hyphenating social culture. I've never seen that. Yeah, I've not. Before. Yeah, uh, that's um, in the book that I'm writing for. It's part of the title. I, I didn't understand it either. All right, so um, I'll set something up with, uh, with Clayton. Yeah, great. Do you think you think two hours is enough? Yeah, I I think so. I think that's a good amount of time. I think so too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking forward to it. All right, man. Well, uh, always a pleasure. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. All right. Take care, Matt. Peace.